Hi, I'm Valerie, and this is The Beauty Brains. Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real scientists answer your beauty questions and give you a different spin on the beauty product industry. This is episode number 191. I'm your host, Valerie George, and with me today is my co-host, Perry Romanowski. Hi, Perry. Hello, Valerie. It's been a little while. It's been a long time, but I'm super excited to uh, do today's show with you. What do we got on the show today? We are going to talk about squalene. What's the big deal about it? We'll also discuss whether the number of ingredients in a product impacts whether or not the number of ingredients in a product impacts its uh, impacts its <laughs> effectiveness. I can't say that. It's been a while. Are dip nails safe? And how do anti-dandruff shampoos work? Plus, we'll cover a couple of stories we found interesting in the world of the beauty industry. But first, it has been such a long time. Guess where I was at while you were in New Zealand? Uh, California. Oh, Nevada. I was at Cosmoprof North America in Las Vegas. Good good old Las Vegas. That's right. Actually, last year, you and I were there together. We were at the convention show Mecca, where every weekend seems to be a convention show. I I missed you this year. I was in New Zealand, uh, out there giving a talk at the Society of Cosmetic Chemists for New Zealand. And And then I just checked out the country. I went skiing. I went on a Milford Sound trip, uh, went to a little town. The roads there are harrowing and you drive on the wrong side of the road. Yeah, I don't know if I could do that. Sounds like you had a good time, but I did pick up a couple souvenirs for you at the show. Oh, you did. So tell tell us a little bit about the Cosmoprof. How was that? Well, it was prevalent with a lot of themes. Uh, CBD Beauty started to creep up there oh, and everybody I saw... Has- Everybody asked me about CBD. That's, that's, that's Yeah, yeah. And I did see actually people with a lot of uh, clean beauty at their booths, like specifically the word clean beauty as a phrase with a hashtag in front of it, which I thought was interesting. I, I figured that would be a big theme. Wait till I do my rant on clean beauty in an upcoming <laughs> show. <laughs> yeah, that would be fun. Uh, but I did uh, pick you up a couple gifts, one being... Uh, sheet masks for your butt. I know we talked about them on a previous episode, but there was a huge inflatable butt there with these really? uh, sheet masks on the butt. And if you took a picture in front of it, which I did, you got free samples. Uh, Body Beauty is the company. Oh, and I, hope we can I, get that, I hope we can get that up on the uh, the web, <laughs> Instagram yeah. or on the, on the blog post. Oh, that would be funny. But uh, so I, I picked up a booty sheet mask for you and I figured if you liked it, maybe we could change the name of the podcast to The Booty Brains. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, we got the trademark and everything. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into some beauty news. Well, I can't believe I missed this story, Perry, but Rhode Island has complimentary sunscreen stations installed on their state beaches and in state parks. That's a handy thing. Yeah. What kind of what kind of sunscreen do they have? Well, a Rhode Island governor, a US senator from Rhode Island, the Rhode Island Department of Health, Rhode Island Department of Environmental Management, the Partnership to Reduce Cancer in Rhode Island, the South County Dermatology and Raw Elements Sunscreen partnered up together in May to post complimentary sunscreen stations all over the state. 
Well, that's pretty handy, and uh, that's they figure it's just uh, some health issues, say, you know, reduce cancer in the population thing. Exactly. The governor's hope is that offering, and I'm, I'm going to quote her here, offering complimentary sunscreen stations at our public recreation facilities is an important way to help people of all ages protect themselves against skin cancer over the summer. And what's great is not only are visitors to the parks and beaches protected, but they have a lot of workers maintaining the properties. And those workers will also have access to sunscreen all day throughout the day. That seems like a pretty novel idea and a a good use of taxpayer money. Yeah, and Rhode Island is not new to sunscreen safety. It's been a really big part of their I'll call it history over the last several years. Uh, Senator Reed, the U.S. Senator I just mentioned, wrote the 2014 Sunscreen Innovation Act. And the state and local authorities have been very active in trying to promote sun safety behavior with the population for more than 10 years. The Partnership to Reduce Cancer in Rhode Island and the South County Dermatology Office also provide in addition to just the sunscreen initiative that Rhode Island has, these two organizations are also providing complimentary skin cancer screenings at state beaches and parks. So while this is an old article, I thought it was old being just a couple months old. I thought it was really relevant because summer is not over yet. We're still in the final dog days. It's very hot. You might be getting your last weekends in at the beach or a state park, and you still have time to take advantage of not only the free sunscreen, but the free screenings. Ah, it'll be interesting to see if uh, other states around the country will pick up this kind of thing. Yeah, I wish I had it when I went to a beach at Rhode Island maybe 15 years ago, and I had to pack my own sunscreen. I don't know how many times you've gone outside and been like, oh man, I forgot my sunscreen. So it's really great that they're providing this to the public. Well, I have to say, I, I, I was actually, this weekend I was in a on a bike ride, I, I rode like 150 miles my oh, legs wow. are, my legs are a bit tired, but <laughs> I I remember to put sunscreen on my legs, and my legs are perfectly fine. I forgot to put it on my arms, so I was out in the sun for like, I don't know, five hours, and, and I think I put sunscreen on once in the morning, and then I forgot to put it on again, and my arms are a little red, I have to say. Oh, gosh. Was it your spray sunscreen? No, I like to use the cream. Like, I, that's, I you know... I know the spray sunscreens work and, you know, they're they're proven and such, but there's something about that cream slopping all over your arm. Then you know it's on there. Well, it only works if you reapply it. I guess that was a lesson learned for you. I have a really nice light spot where my watch was, though. Well, I guess that's a good indicator of all the sun exposure you had. <laughs> Indeed it is. Shall we talk about my story here? Yeah. Well, you know, Valerie, one of my favorite yearly articles came out from Happy Magazine. That's the article that lists who are the biggest cosmetic com- companies in the world. Ooh. I like to, yeah, I like to see how the cosmetic industry is doing as a whole. And this article also it gives you a chance to sort of step back and see the big picture about the cosmetic industry. Uh, there really is so much that you read about cosmetic product, products on the internet and the claims and the things that people say are important, but seeing what brands really are being successful and people are buying, it just gives you a much better idea of what most consumers care about and you know that and that's just better than any kind of press release or blog post or sort of YouTube video that you see. Uh, really, you look at the numbers, the big companies are still selling the bulk of products. 
What I find most surprising, though, is just how many brands are owned by these big companies, right? Lots of brands do a great job of obscuring who actually owns them. For example, Burt's Bees uh, cultivates this natural image of a small company created by this guy, Burt. They actually had a, uh, a pretty good documentary on Netflix about Burt's Bees. Did you see that one? No, I haven't yet. It's on my list, though. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty good. You kind of feel sorry for Bert, but it was a good one anyway. But really, Bert's Bees, I, I only bring them up because they're actually owned by this giant company, Clorox. Well, Bert's Bees was a small company at one point of, in time, and I think it's very interesting to look at all these smaller companies that the big companies own, and you can see that it's very hard to be innovative in today's day and age. And so the best way to grow your sales is through acquisition. And these big companies just keep getting bigger and bigger because of their acquisition strategies. It's pretty interesting. Actually, yeah. And, and you know, it's it's kind of hard to keep up with these things, uh, like who's buying who. But I thought, Valerie, we would play a little game. And this game is called Who Owns That? Oh, that sounds fun. <laughs> yeah, so I put together this list of seven popular beauty brands. And let's see if you can guess which large company owns the brand. Oh, gosh, I hope I get it right. I, I work for the world's largest privately owned uh-huh. salon brand. And it's very hard to keep up with all the big companies who own what. So I hope I Absolutely. do okay. All right. Well, let, let's, this is the international edition, by the way. So let's see. Uh, uh, so these companies are all based outside of the U.S., although uh, a lot of the products are sold in the United States. So you'll recognize the brands. Let's see how you do. Okay. Okay. Who owns that? The first brand is Urban Decay. Urban Decay is owned by L'Oreal. Estee Lauder was my first uh, instinct. Uh, I'm going to go with Estee Lauder. Uh, well, you should have stuck with L'Oreal because uh, Urban Decay is owned by L'Oreal. Okay, I should have gone um, with my 29... second instinct. Oh, man. <laughs> exactly. uh, this, this company was started in 1995 by two founders, one of which was already wealthy, having made money in technology. I think Cisco Systems. Um, it was sold to L'Oreal in 2013. All right, how about number two? Who owns NARS? NARS is owned by Estee Lauder. NARS is owned by Shiseido. Oh, shoot. I did Uh, know that. Oh, man. (laughs) Shiseido is a $9 billion company. Uh, NARS was started in 1994 by Francois NARS, who was a makeup artist and photographer. It was bought by Shiseido in the year 2000. All right, you're you're doing well. Uh, I'm so mad. I did know that. Okay, next. All right, I think we got this is number three, three of seven. Uh, Lancome. Who owns Lancome? Lancome is Estee Lauder. <laughs> you said that with such confidence. It's but wrong. Indeed, it's L'Oreal. I was gonna say that. Dang it! Where is Estee Lauder in this mix? It's not because these are international companies, and Estee Lauder is the U.S. Oh, uh, that's right. That's true. Wow. There you go. But uh, let's uh, about Lancome. Lancome was started in 1935 by a couple of guys from France and was originally a fragrance house. It was bought by L'Oreal in 1964. So that's been a L'Oreal product for a long time. I guess I just don't know my cosmetics brands. That's what you okay, get when okay. you work in hair. Thank deck. We're going to branch out here. And I actually do have a couple of hair ones, which you better get. Oh, gosh. <laughs> All right. Number four, Biore. 
Biore is owned by Cal. Ding, 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 ding. Yes, Cal. I got that right. $9.5 billion company. Um, now, I couldn't find out when Biore was started, uh, but it was created by the Cow Corporation originally, and it was started way back in 1887. Oh, wow. All right, number five, Bedhead. Bedhead is a TG brand. That's correct. Which is owned by the parent company. Now, see, this is a little tricky because okay, this okay. is a mass market company. And I work in the salon prestige industry, so I don't look too much at them. But I'm going to guess it is a Procter & Gamble company. Good guess. It was owned by Unilever. Uh, That was going to be my second guess. $35 billion company, Unilever. Uh, It was first created by British stylists. Tony and Guy, and as you said, it was distributed by TG. That I did know. Mm-hmm. Hence, TG two, is the name. Yep. <laughs> we've got two more, and both hair ones. Uh, John Frieda. That is a cow brand. That is correct. You know your cow brands. Uh, this was started <laughs> by Apparently a no others, but yeah. <laughs> this is started by a hairstylist and launched the first product called Frizz-Ease back in the 1990s. That is a great product. I, I tell you what, silicones are amazing, and I actually do like the John Frieda products, and you may see me sometimes going to get them at Walmart. <laughs> Well, I tell you what, uh, interesting that Frizzies, that was one, when I first started at Alberto Culver, that was, Frizzies was one of the first products that I was asked to copy for a VO5 version of Frizzies. Oh, did you do a good job? Uh, of course I did. All right. <laughs> I, was a, I was a new formulator, though. Kyle incidentally bought John Frieda back in 2002. Mm-hmm. Okay, we've got one more for you before we get on to questions. Okay. Um, Number seven, Kerastase. Kerastase is a L'Oreal brand, and it is actually considered in the United States one of their prestige brands, higher end. But in Europe, it is considered a mainstream part of their portfolio. Interesting. And that is correct. And it was originally uh, founded by L'Oreal in 1964. Okay, there you go. You got a few of those right. Uh, Took a swing and a miss at a couple of them, but uh, that's our new game. Who owns that? Well, it just goes to show that I know so much not in the (laughs) cosmetics industry uh, that I, I should bone up on all of that. But I actually do think it is helpful for you to know what companies own which brands because often they use the same raw materials and sources for their formulas and sometimes they have this tiered approach where and I actually should have known L'Oreal owned Lancome but in Lancome they may use this really cool technology for your mascara and it'll trickle down to their um, lower maybe drugstore brands like Illegal Lanx Mascara may use the similar formula, same technology, maybe just changing a star ingredient or the fragrance. Yeah, because they get economies of scale, so they can buy a lot more of that raw material and get the mm-hmm. price for cheaper. Mm-hmm. So as a strategy, you you know if you like, like a higher expensive product, see what company uh, made the, the product and or owns the brand and find a 
another brand that's less expensive that you might buy. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Next time, I'm gonna I'm gonna play this game with you. Uh, yeah, we'll, absolutely. we'll see how you do. It wasn't that easy, <laughs> guys. I I don't I don't think I would even do as well as you did. Yeah. but we'll see. Shoot, it, you know oh, though, I should have gone with my instincts on it. That's. <laughs> mm. Indeed, indeed. Actually, that does remind me of a something that I should correct from last episode, uh, episode 190 that I did on my own. In one segment, somebody asked about the product La Mer. Mm-hmm. And while my analysis of the formula was, was spot on, I, I had La Mer, I mistakenly said that La Mer was owned by L'Oreal. Oh, it's not. That I do know. And that is owned by... Estee Lauder. <laughs> that is correct. Estee yeah. Lauder owns pretty, Lamar, so. Yeah. But I don't think they always did, right? I don't think that's a house brand. No, I think it was something that they bought. But uh, in the show, uh, episode 190, I said that Lamar was owned by L'Oreal. It's not. The rest of my analysis of the question and the ingredients used, they use petrolatum mineral oil glycerin in the formula. You can find less expensive versions of that. Uh, but uh, I just wanted to correct that. Oh, well, that's nice of you. Speaking of corrections, we do have one recall to share with you guys, and we didn't think we would have to do another one of these segments so soon, the recall segment, which is new to the show, but there was another big product recall, this time a big brand, Neutrogena. Perry, who's Neutrogena owned by? Neutrogena is owned by Neutrogena? No, it's a Johnson & Johnson company. Oh, okay. See, listeners, it really pays off to know who owns who. Anyway, uh, Neutrogena, maybe you guys have seen it, our loyal listeners, has this light therapy mask that kind of, I just laugh every time I look at it. It kind of looks <laughs> yeah. like a welder's mask, like right, you're yeah, going to yeah. go out and start, you know, soldering some stuff together. Uh, but this light mask has provided or was supposed to provide some light therapy to your skin. And they found that in a certain small subset of the population, if you have an underlying eye condition, this mask can enhance ocular photosensitivity. And there could be a theoretical risk of eye injury. So they aren't saying anything has happened or will happen, but they are saying that something could happen. So if you have this mask and you experience any visual discomfort, they ask you to stop using it. Contact your healthcare professional. And if you have any questions, including you want your money back, which is not a question, but more demand, you can contact uh, Neutrogena and get that taken care of. All right. Well, enough about welding masks for acne (laughs) therapy. Let's answer some beauty questions. Let's do it. Our first question is an audio question. Hi, Beauty Brains. My name is Jillian, and I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. I recently started listening to your podcast because I'm a chemical engineering graduate and a makeup and skincare enthusiast, so I love learning about the science behind cosmetics. Plus, you guys make my one-hour commute a lot more interesting. My question is, What's the deal with squalane oil? Also, what's the difference between squalane and squalene oil, and how do they compare to other facial oils, such as rosehip oil, which I currently use? I've seen claims that squalane is considered the best oil for all skin types, but is that really true? Some claims include that it is more shelf-stable and less likely to go rancid because it is a saturated oil, 
versus rosehip oil being polyunsaturated, and that it is an excellent hydrator, oil controller, antioxidant, and antibacterial that also sinks into the skin better than other oils. Lastly, what can a $38 per ounce product, such as the Peter Thomas Roth Squalane Oil, do for me that an $8 per ounce product from The Ordinary cannot? Thanks, and look forward to hearing your answer. All right. Thank you so much, Jillian, for asking that question. And if you would like to ask us a question, you can do so very easily using audio on your phone. You can use your voice memo app, whatever device you have, whatever that app is called on your phone. And you could shoot it over to us by email, thebeautybrains at gmail.com. We like to feature the audio questions first so that there's a little mix up of voices. And I know it makes our fans so happy when their questions get featured. Well, let's talk about squalane. So squalane is popping up everywhere these days in various facial oils, moisturizers, serums. So we thought it would be a really good time to cover it. People swear by squalane for all the reasons Jillian stated. It's an excellent hydrator. It doesn't feel greasy when applied to the skin. Very lightweight. In fact, when I moved to LA, it's such an excellent hydrator that I was not acclimated to this really dry climate that's in Los Angeles and I was experiencing very dry facial skin. So I would just put a drop of squalane into my moisturizer each night to amplify it a little bit. So Jillian Essien claims that squalane is considered the best oil for all skin types. I don't really know if that's true. Squalane is not really an oil and I haven't seen any studies that caution one skin type over another from using it, but I do think all skin types could benefit from it. See, squalene is not naturally occurring. It's actually derived from the hydrogenation of squalene, which is why Jillian asks the difference between squalene and squalene. Squalene is a precursor in metabolic pathways in our bodies to form various cholesterol steroids and actually can be found in tiny amounts in our sebum. But it's also found in plants, other animals, and squalene is pretty infamous for coming from shark liver oil. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope all of our fans can rest assured it's readily available from differing plants like olives and through bioengineering where sugar is used to produce lots of squalene, which is converted to squalene. In certain geographies, squalene, I've heard, can still be obtained from shark liver oil, but in the majority of the world, this practice is really frowned upon and it typically comes from the plant or biotechnology sources I just mentioned. It certainly wouldn't be uh, like vegan appropriate, right? If it came from uh, sharks. Of course. And it's really easy for manufacturers to understand where their squalene is coming from. So if you are curious about the source of a squalene in one of your beauty products, you should contact your brand and ask them for their official statement, but it's a very easy question and any squalene supplier is readily able to and willing to supply that to a manufacturer or a brand. So olives aren't actually harvested for squalene. Squalene is a waste product from the refinement of olive oil. So when you have olives harvested and they're making EVOO that Rachel Ray made famous, or they're refining olive oil for other purposes, a lot of the stuff that they refine out of it is just set to the side. And about 30% of that, we'll call it olive oil refinement waste, contains a squalene. And they need to do something with it, so they convert it via hydrogenation into squalene. 
that is one thing. If you're interested in organic chemistry, uh, you'll know that the ending of that, the E-N-E-N, -E squalene, that says that there's a double bond in the molecule. Mm -hmm. And when the L-A-N-E, the A-N-E, means that uh, all of the double bonds are out of it. Right, and that makes it pretty stable and something that we can readily use. Now, that's the olive oil source. In biotechnology, you can also make squalane, and that's done through yeast and fermentation. So yeast, their DNA is has a gene inserted into it, and then they feed the yeast a bunch of sugar cane, and the yeast undergo fermentation. Instead of producing alcohol, the yeast actually produce a molecule called farnesine, and then farnesine is converted into squalene through a chemical reaction, and then squalene is hydrogenated to squalane. So the end result is a very pure material, squalane, that is sustainably produced through yeast. Better living through biochemistry. Exactly. It's sustainably produced. I've heard the sugar cane is readily available and just sits around these biotechnology plantations. And whether it's produced from olives or yeast, squalane is extremely stable, not readily prone to oxidation. So... Yeah, it sounds like a good uh, hydrocarbon type thing. I don't want to call it an oil because it's not really an oil, right? Nope, not an oil at all. Squalene is not really an oil. An oil has specific chemical components that make it an oil, like tri uh, triglycerides. Vegetable oils are full of triglycerides, and these constituents can undergo oxidation, just like the rosehip oil. It's famous for its omega-3s, which actually speaks to a polyunsaturated fatty acid that gets oxidized very, very easily. So you don't have to worry about squalane undergoing oxidation and having a poor shelf life. Rosehip oil is, I mentioned, famously unstable. And we know that because it has gone through an oxidative stability index test, like a lot of oils available for use in the cosmetics industry. This is, do you know that test, Perry? I do not know that test. Uh, what, what do you do there? So an oil is exposed to heat about 100 to 110 degrees Celsius, and then air is passed over the oil, and the air is collected into a vessel, and the all of these oxidation byproducts are collected into this vessel. And sure, they do sure. this for a certain period of time until a threshold is passed with oxidation products in this vessel. And the amount of time it takes to reach that point is what is called the OSI, the Oxidative Stability Index. And rosehip oil has a rather low OSI of just over five hours, which means it's not very stable. Typically in the but cosmetics industry, I've heard you don't want to use an oil uh, with an OSI. Some people say less than 20. I've heard other vendors say less than 10. Uh, but no matter what, rosehip oil is pretty low, whereas squalane uh, does not easily undergo oxidation. And the problem with oxidation is that the the oil goes it gets rancid, it smells bad, and it gets darker in color. Exactly. And some of the byproducts that are made from the oxidation process are not good for your skin. So whether or not $38 for a Peter Thomas Roth squalene oil or an $8 squalene oil from the ordinary, the price you pay really is up to you and which brand you support. I can say, speaking from a chemistry perspective, squalene is not inexpensive. It's not 
super pricey, uh, but it's also not cheap. Uh, and whether it comes from olives or engineering through biochemistry, it's really sort of the same price. So it just really depends what brand you choose to support and what you're willing to pay. Shall we uh, take a question that was written into us? Ooh, old fashioned by email. <laughs> this one came from Seda. Do you, do you, is that how you think I would pronounce that? I think I would pronounce it that way. Okay. Uh, well, Seda asks, does a product's say a moisturizer or a serum does the number of ingredients matter for its effectiveness that's an interesting question and it's a marketing strategy that you see uh, a lot of brands will use they'll make an ingredient list that is super long uh it's, it's actually the ordinary is an example of a brand that does the opposite thing where they make a the label really short right so less ingredients uh, is better in some cases, but having a long list of ingredients is a, a pretty common tactic that a lot of brands use. But the bottom line is that the number of ingredients is not really an indication of the effectiveness of the product. So let's talk about why any ingredient is in a formula. And as far as formulating goes, Ingredients are put into formulas for three main reasons. First, there are the functional ingredients, uh, ingredients like uh, squalane, for example, uh, which is put in there for whatever skin benefits uh, that you can get for it. So the functional ingredients are put into the formulas for a specific benefit, skin benefits or cleansing benefits, uh, some sort of benefit that you're using the product for. Another reason you put ingredients in is for what I call aesthetic modifiers and stabilizers. And these are ingredients that you add to a formula. They, they aren't really providing a primary benefit, but they make the formula look better, make it feel better, they make it smell better, they make it last longer. Uh, they also help to keep the product stable and microbial free. So preservatives would be a type of ingredient like this. And the third reason that you add any ingredient to a formula is what I call claims ingredients. And these are really just ingredients that are put in uh, to look good on the label and to help support whatever marketing story that ingredient uh, that some cosmetic marketer wants to make about their products. And when you see a really long list of ingredients, often the, the majority of the ingredients that you're seeing in there are the aesthetic modifiers and then these claims ingredients. The claims ingredients drive me really crazy. What I like about you, Perry, well, I like a lot of things, but in the lab, you have this minimalist formulator approach. And I take that exact same approach in my work where I think what has to be in this product to make it functional, to make it enjoyable. And I put nothing more in it. And that actually got me into trouble one time Marketing, oh, yeah. di marketing didn't specify any special claim story. And so I made this hair color and they love the performance and they said, well, what makes it work? And I didn't have any sexy ingredients to talk about. <laughs> right, and they right. were like, no, but what makes it work? So I learned my lesson the hard way. There, there has to be a balance between this minimalist formulation approach and making marketing happy and giving them lots of, you know, cute stuff to talk about. But as a formulator, I hate them. Well, you know, as 
as we as we've talked about probably in previous shows that it's really difficult to differentiate yourself uh, from the formula standpoint from the technology because you know everybody has access to almost all the same technology now there are some molecules that have been patented and things but for the vast majority of cosmetic products on the market right now uh, everybody can get the ingredients like Peter Thomas Rorth can and the ordinary can both get squalane, right? And they can get it from the same supplier. And and really, the point of difference in how to showcase the squalane is how they're using it. What way did they put the formula together? And those are the really key parts of the formula that appear up front, and maybe one or two aesthetic modifiers at the end. But we all have access to the same stuff. Exactly. And so what brands will do is that they'll take some claims ingredients in which the marketing people can build a story around. Maybe you put in oat protein, right? Everybody could have put in oat protein, but certain brand builds their brand identity on oat protein and they put that in there. Some brands, they they just put everything that they can put on anything that sounds natural they're going to put in there and you get these long ingredient lists. And so the bottom line is no, you you don't really want to pick products because they have a long ingredient list. Most of the ingredients that are put in to make that really long ingredient list, they're just put in there for the marketing story. The main functional ingredients are usually the ones that you find in the first, you know, four or five or six ingredients. After that is the aesthetic modifiers and then mostly the marketing fluff. Amen. Our third question is Anna from Instagram. Anna says, I'm enjoying your podcast and I've heard you talking about the efficacy of different nail polishes, but I'm concerned about the safety of gel nail polish and SNS, which some people call dip nail polish. I'm concerned about what it will do to my nails with continuous use. Do nails need to breathe? I appreciate any feedback. Well, thanks, Anna. First and foremost, The biggest myth about nails is that they need to breathe. I've spoken in previous episodes about my obsession with nail scientist Doug Shoon. We're going to put a link to his informational newsletter in the show if you work in the nail industry or just interested in nail science. But one thing I learned from him many years ago in stalking him at an event was that nails do not need to breathe at all. They don't breathe. They don't need to breathe. They don't even have lungs. (laughs) Any nutrients the nails need come from the blood supply to the nail bed, which is underneath your nail. You can't see it. You can't feel it. Applying topical products with nutrients doesn't feed your nail. Nothing in the air helps make your nails stronger. Everything comes from the blood supply. So those nail polishes you have promising strength through vitamins, throw them away. I'm just kidding. Or just, use or them, just don't. But or, well, don't, yeah, don't buy into it. Them, don't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> don't buy them because of the vitamins, because that's what we were just talking about. It claims ingredient. Yeah. All right. So now that we covered nails don't need to breathe, let's talk about the safety of nail bed and using these products. So people do perceive gel nail polish and this dip polish, known as the brand SNS, uh, to be highly damaging to nails. And they can be damaging if they're improperly removed by the nail technician. Hmm. Oftentimes, the nail technicians rush through the removal process or use aggressive physical means to get the the products off the nail because they're really, really bound to the nail plate. And typically, 
the least damaging way is to soak the fingers in some sort of solvent that removes them and then they wipe off. But these nail technicians get in a rush. They have a lot of clients to do. They only have 25 minutes to turn this manicure over. So they take physical objects and soak a little bit, but then chip the rest of the way off. And that's what makes gel nail polish damaging or dip powder polish damaging as well. You can get pitting in the nails, flaking. I've had it happen to me. I happen to have a really healthy, good nail bed, and I'm very fortunate for that because when you get these little defects, even more damage can happen down the road. And your nails are not breathing, are they? (laughs) (laughs) They're not breathing. So with proper nail bed preparation, gentle removal, your nail beds are perfectly safe and will be left with minimal to no damage with these types of nail products. What about the uh, sharing nail products and the safety of that? Well, Doug has also copiously covered this topic for me. Aside from the fact that nail products should only be applied to healthy nail beds, I mean, if we talk about really diseased fingers, of, of course there's some risk there, but nail technicians should only be working with really healthy nails. What microorganisms are in the nail plate, very little of them, They can't live in the types of solvents and ingredients used in gel nail polishes, so you don't have to worry about that brush touching one person's finger and then contaminating you if it's a relatively healthy nail plate because of the types of ingredients no organisms can live in there. However, dip powders are typically just the acrylic nail powder ingredients uh, with colorants in there. And those don't have any types of solvents in them to help kill microorganisms. So when you have this type of manicure, Perry, I, I was just going to ask if you've ever had a dip polish manicure. but <laughs> No, no, I, I have not had that. Not yet, anyway. Okay. Uh, you can look it up on YouTube. Sometimes you'll see people, they'll paint uh, pretty much a, a glue on the nail, and then you'll see someone's finger being dipped into powder. That's how it got the name dip powder. Uh, Doug Shun has commented that this can be higher risk because multiple clients are dipping their fingers into the same powder. Some technicians will sprinkle it or apply it a different way, but most people aren't sanitizing their hands uh, before the nail procedure or washing their hands. So, you know, he has concerns about people sharing the same powder dipping container. So he doesn't recommend that. And sharing your microbes too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But To all of our listeners, please don't worry. Nail products are regulated by the FDA for safety, just like cosmetics and other personal care products are. So the FDA does provide some basic guidelines for the safety of nail product ingredients on their website. And or you can go to Doug Shoon's newsletter. Shoon Scientific is his blog. And you can learn all about nails and more. Or you can be like me and go to an event and stalk Doug and make him answer all of your nail questions. Indeed. Doug Doug does good stuff. I, I, I know him also. All right, our last question. Hey, Beauty Brains. This is Rebecca from Houston, Texas. Just want to say that I love your show um, and thanks in advance for answering my question. Um, my question for you today is about anti-dandruff shampoos. I have a dry scalp, so I use an anti-dandruff shampoo whenever I wash my hair, Um, but I only do that once a week because I try not to damage it. Could you talk about how anti-dandruff shampoos work and if there's a certain number of times you have to use them per week in order for them to be effective? Thanks. Well, thanks for that question, Rebecca. 
this is probably one that many in the beauty brains community are worrying, uh, wondering about because about 20% of people suffer from dandruff a- at some point. Now, I personally have never really had uh, a problem with this, as I can re- recall. How about you, Valerie? No, I have patches of dry skin, but never clinical, clinically diagnosed dandruff. Yeah, I'm trying to think like when I was in high school, maybe. And I, I, don't, I don't remember ever really having this issue. Way to be relatable to the audience, Perry. <laughs> well, just because I can't haven't experienced it doesn't mean I don't know about it. Uh, dandruff is actually a scalp condition that results in flakes of skin that get in your hair and then on your clothes, and it can be embarrassing for some people. It can also cause your head to itch a bit. Fortunately, for most people, this is a treatable condition. Uh, it can have a number of causes, such as excessive oily skin, uh, that's uh, seborrheic dermatitis, or not washing your hair enough. Uh, it's also thought by some to be caused by a fungus. Uh, can you say that uh, name of the fungus there? Pterosporum oh, ovale. I uh, see. You're very good at that. Were you a bio major? I did take a lot of biology, biochemistry, microbiology. Yeah, you know, I, I took all those things, too. I still can't say the names of these organisms. <laughs> oh, maybe but, I'm saying it wrong. I don't know. No, no. It's It sounds, it, it rolls off your tongue. Like, it, it, that's how you say it. So if there are any biologists out there, uh, if we're saying it wrong, let us know. Yeah, just send us a voice recording of the correct pronunciation. Pterosporum ovale, tomato. Exactly. Anyway, this is a fungus which lives on most people's head, and but it only causes dandruff in some people. We, we don't exactly know why. Dry skin and having skin reactions to ingredients in hair care products can also result in dandruff. Now, interestingly, dandruff is also related to your age. Before puberty, it's rarely seen. It's more common during puberty, and then it peaks for people in their early 20s, and then steadily declines in middle to old age. Is that why you don't have to worry about it? Exactly. I guess that's <laughs> why I don't have to. Wait, wait a second. <laughs> um, now, the different causes is why there are different types of anti-dandruff shampoos and actives to treat that. Two types of anti-dandruff actives are antifungals. These include zinc pyrithione, which is found in head and shoulders, one of the top sellers, at least in the United States, and ketoconazole, which is found in the brand Nizerol. Coal tar is another active to fight dandruff, and that's found in Neutrogena's T-Gel shampoo. Although I imagine they have a hard time selling something that says coal tar on it, huh? I think that's one of the most outdated terms ever but that's for another show yeah that's what the fda says Uh, and then there's also selenium sulfide which is found in selsun blue and finally there are anti-dandruff shampoos that use salicylic acid which essentially exfoliates the flakes off of your head this is the active found in neutrogena t-cell product these are the only active ingredients that have actually been proven to be effective for treating dandruff. And in the United States, they're actually the only actives allowed for treating dandruff. You can't use willow bark extract and say that it treats dandruff on the scalp. The FDA 
considers dandruff treatments to be an over-the-counter drug, and they have these very specific regulations that dictate what actives you can use, what levels you can use them at, and what claims you can make for treating dandruff. This is different than other geographies in the world. Maybe other geographies have similar regulations, but I do know in Europe that anti-dandruff products are considered cosmetic products, so they're a little bit more relaxed about which ingredients can be used to treat them and what claims you make. Yeah, that's kind of how they work with the sunscreens also. Exactly. Now, there are some home remedies such as tea tree oil or coconut oil, aloe vera, apple cider vinegar. These things just haven't been proven to be effective, and in the United States, it's illegal to claim that they're anti-dandruff. If you really want to get rid of your dandruff, you pretty much should stick with the stuff that's been scientifically proven to work. Incidentally, I also saw the advice to use crushed up aspirin to control dandruff because it contains salicylic acid. Oh my gosh. Talk about a kitchen chemist hack. Yeah, this, this could have been the kitchen chemistry hack section, but aspirin is not salicylic acid. It's acetosalicylic acid, and those are not the same molecule. Um, acetosalicylic acid has not been proven to work the same way as salicylic acid, so it's not going to work on your dandruff. So under the question of how often you should use your anti-dandruff products, the standard advice is to use an anti-dandruff shampoo every day until your problem is gone, and then you can use it once or twice a week just to ensure that the condition doesn't come back. But you really have to experiment with what works for you because different active ingredients work better for different people, and it really depends on what is causing your dandruff uh, to figure out which ingredient is going to work for your dandruff. But the good news is that a number of the anti-dandruff shampoos also use pretty good standard shampoo technology. For example, if you look at the ingredients on head and shoulder, you look at the ingredient list, It's essentially the same as the Pantene formula, but just with the anti-dandruff actives in there. So you can actually get a good shampoo that also happens to be an anti-dandruff shampoo. Who are the parent owners of Head & Shoulders and Pantene, Perry? (laughs) That would be Procter & Gamble. Good job. You know, I actually love both Head & Shoulders and Pantene. It's it's a confession. Don't tell anybody (laughs) at work because they get all uppity when you're like, I love Pantene shampoo, but... Wait, I wait a love second. This you're, stuff. Not, you're, you're not being you're not being paid by P and G to shill their products, are you? No, I'm not a corporate shill. I have no affiliation with Procter and Gamble, Head and Shoulders, Pantene, or any of the, their subsidiaries. I'm just a girl from the Midwest, and my dad used Head and Shoulders. I actually really like the way it made my hair feel, even though I don't have dandruff or I haven't had it. And Pantene is just a very nice, cost-effective formula. I have coarse hair that kind of, it's not really coarse, but it's like thick-stranded. It kind of looks like really long male leg hair. And the Pantene formula just really softens it nicely. And it's not expensive. It's a good product. Good product. And, And nice foam. Well, we're out of time today, guys. Next time on the Beauty wow, Brains, already? we're going Whoa. already. We're going to cover oxygen facials, extracts in your cosmetic products, and we're going to go back to our new segment, Kitchen Chemistry. Excellent. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Hey, if you do get a chance, could you go over to iTunes and leave us a review? 
That will help other people find the show and ensure that we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. We got through a few today, but there's lots more on, and lots more to come in the future. Also, follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at the Beauty Brains 2018. Yeah, you can check that out. Uh, Valerie posted some live feed from Cosmoprof. On Twitter, we're at the Beauty Brains, <laughs> and we have a Facebook page. <laughs> and we do. <laughs> the Beauty Brains are also on Patreon. If you want to support the show, Patreon is the best way to do that. This is going to help the show uh, avoid getting any of those pesky advertisements and affiliate programs that I find maddening on some other podcasts, which I love to listen to. I just don't love to listen to their commercials. So if you want to keep us ad-free, go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and subscribe. Yeah, I know I talked about some products here today, but we don't typically do product reviews or paid posts. We do this because we love it and we appreciate your support. Yeah, and if we like a product, hey, we can say we do. Yeah, and then we'll change our name to The Booty Brains. <laughs> Only if you like your butt mask, though. <laughs> All right, thanks again, I'll everyone, for listening. And remember, be brainy about your beauty. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Kittens!